All right, we are back. Let's make use of that uh, new resource here, the Wits Thesaurus, and see if we can come up with some more Algonquin roundtable tales. Among people who like to quote notable wits, uh, Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley seem to come up uh, right alongside George Bernard Shaw, Mark Twain, and Oscar Wilde. According to the Wits Thesaurus, a young man loftily looked around a party and remarked in a bored tone, I'm afraid I simply cannot bear fools. To which Dorothy Parker replied, Odd, apparently your mother could. And rather famously, at one point, her cohort Robert Benchley emerged from an elegant New York nightclub and tapped a resplendently uniformed man at the door and said, Give me a cab. Sir, I happen to be a rear admiral of the fleet of the United States Navy, snorted the affronted agent. Okay, said Benchley, call me a battleship. You probably heard that one, but I bet you haven't heard this one. Evidently, Dorothy Parker awoke in the morning of June 13, 1963, to find her husband, Alan Campbell, dead beside her. Among those standing with Parker and others as Campbell's body was carried from the room was a certain officious Mrs. Jones, who solicitously asked Parker if she could do anything for her. Give me a new husband, <laughs> Dorothy Parker. Before anyone would have laughed could, Mrs. Jones said, I think that's the most callous and disgusting remark I've ever heard in my whole life. So sorry said Parker, then run down to the corner and get me a ham and cheese on rye and tell him to hold the mayo. Let's go back to Benchley. Apparently, uh, a friend said to him, don't you know alcohol is a slow poison? Benchley, who liked his booze, replied, so who's in a hurry? All right, involving a couple other Algonquinites, we have this one. Actress Ruth Gordon was describing her latest play to George Kaufman. She said, in the first scene, I'm on the left side of the stage and the audience has to imagine I'm eating dinner in a crowded restaurant. Then in scene two, I run over to the right side of the stage and the audience imagines I'm in my own drawing room. And the second night, Kaufman added unimpressed, you have to imagine there's an audience out in front. And finally, this one among our Algonquinites. While sitting at the famous round table at the Algonquin, Dramatist Mark Connolly had his virtually bald head rubbed by the hand of a passing man who sneered, It feels just like my wife's behind. Not batting an eyelash, Connolly shot back, So it does. So it does. The quotes in this book, by the way, involve a lot more than the uh, roundtable of the Algonquin people. I just cherry-picked those, but here's one from the Old West. I hope this one's true. Reportedly, Jesse James and his gang were given much-needed hospitality by a lonely and impoverished widow who was expecting a visit by the debt collector. Out of the take from the recent bank robbery, James gave her the required $1,400 to pay off the debt and reminded the shock woman to obtain a receipt in exchange for payment. James and his men hid along the road leading to the farmhouse, and shortly after the grim-looking debt collector came, he emerged looking very content. James and his gang then stopped the collector, reclaimed the $1,400, and rode off. Like I said, I hope that one's true. Let's talk about a few more serious items. Starting with the fact that to the consternation of some environmentalists, the United States Navy has rejected a call by the California Coastal Commission to curtail their use of sonar and underwater explosives during training. Last March, the commission voted unanimously that the Navy's assertion that its training does not harm marine mammals was not supported by scientific evidence. The commission wants the Navy to declare some coastal areas to be off-limits for training. 
But the Navy disagreed with the commission in a letter to the panel's Management for Energy, Open Resources, and Federal Consistency. Meanwhile, on the East Coast, there's been an unexpected surge of dead dolphins washing ashore. Yeah, I wonder why. Let's talk about education or non-education for a moment. Nice long piece in The Economist about a new book titled The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way by Amanda Ripley. Peace notes that to understand what's happening in classrooms around the world, Miss Ripley follows three American teenagers who spent a year as foreign exchange students in Finland, Poland, and South Korea. Their wide-eyed observations made for compelling reading. In each country, the Americans were startled by how hard their peers work and how seriously they take their studies. The magazine notes that math classes tended to be more sophisticated with lessons that show the often fascinating way that geometry, trigonometry, and calculus work together in the real world. What a concept! As we pointed out on this program many times, the way we teach math in this country ought to be a felony. Since people attend math classes, but afterwards no one seems to be able to do any math. But back to the piece. They note that students in other countries forego calculators, having learned how to manipulate numbers in their heads. Again, what a concept. Yesterday in my local market, when the bill came to $10.08, I handed the guy a 20, three pennies, but not finding a nickel, gave him a dime. He then dutifully counted out my change, $24 in bills and 95 cents in coinage. I said to him, uh, I was a nickel over. To which he added, oh yeah, I did it wrong, and then handed me a dime. And this is the country where we want to teach more algebra to 8th graders. To continue with the review in The Economist, classrooms tended to be understated, free of the high-tech gadgetry of the schools back home in America, and teachers in every subject exhibit the authority of professionals held in high regard. Of course, it isn't all a bed of roses overseas. The author notes that in South Korea, there's a culture of educational masochism. Pupils study all hours in the hope of securing a precious spot in one of the country's three prestigious universities. Notes that South Korea may have one of the highest school graduation rates in the world, but children appear miserable. Under The Economist, Miss Ripley packs a startling amount of insight into a slim book. Maybe we all should read it. I have to comment on an editorial piece titled Technophiles by David Pogue in Scientific American this month. To quote, when my father was growing up, his father offered him 25 cents to memorize the complete list of U.S. presidents. A generation later, my dad made the same deal with me, upping the reward to $5. The prize had grown, he explained, because of inflation and because there were now more presidents. This year, said Pogue, I offered my own son $10 to perform the same stunt. My son, however, was baffled. Why on earth would he memorize the presidents? Nowadays, he argued, everybody has a smartphone and always will. Pogue says he'll probably turn out to be correct. 2013 is the tipping point year in which, for the first time in history, it's thought smartphones will outsell plain ones. In other words, having a computer in your pocket is the norm. Google is always one tap away, so there's very little sense, as far as my son is concerned, in memorizing anything. Presidents, the periodic table of the elements, the state capitals, or the multiplication tables above 10. I'm somewhat horrified to note that Pogue seems to buy this argument. He notes that uh, parents of my generation might have a predictable reaction, dismay and disappointment. Those young kids today, do we have to make everything easy for them? 
He says that's an understandable argument. On the other hand, there is a powerful counter-argument. As a society marches ever forward, we leave obsolete skills in our wake. Adding, maybe having a store of ready information is more fundamental, more important, and thus we should fight more fiercely to retain it, and yet we've confronted this issue before. Well, when pocket calculators came out, educators and parents were alarmed about students losing the ability to do arithmetic using paper and pencil, to which we would add, how about in your head? Because after hundreds of generations of teaching basic math, were we now prepared to cede that expertise to machines? He said, yes, we are. Today, calculators are almost universally permitted in the classroom. To which this correspondent would say, I- I'm not buying this. If you hand a guy 2013 and he gives you back 2495, it's because he didn't check a calculator and couldn't do the arithmetic in his head. As far as memorizing the presidents go, yours truly did that in the third grade. It certainly wasn't necessary to do so to study U.S. history, but the fact that you know who came before who and who after who does give you a framework which in your head allows you to, to have a better grasp of history. It's just, it's just easier. You have a framework to build upon. And I should note with some dismay that the opinion that uh, memorization is still valuable is one that does not necessarily represent those of KDVS. Um, I don't know who the other two were. I, I, I can just look it up anytime I want, I guess. Oh, oh, oh yeah, they were also the, uh, our sponsors or, or the University of California. I guess it was somewhat useful to keep that in my head. All right, we're still going to tackle that issue of TWA Flight 100 and the cover-up that surrounds it with uh, Tom Stalkup and possibly Christina Borgeson, but um, not today. Let's talk about another strange news item that may or may not represent some sort of sinister conspiracy. I believe we mentioned in this program a couple weeks back the puzzling story of the death of journalist Michael Hastings, who who died in a, a fiery crash in Los Angeles after his car struck a palm tree at a high rate of speed. The authorities in L.A. released a coroner's report earlier this week saying that Michael Hastings appeared to have traces of drugs in him, some marijuana and perhaps amphetamine. Well, Russell Baker on his website, whowhatwhy.com, has taken issue a bit with some of this reporting. It admits that Hastings had uh, had a drug problem in the past, but had been clean and sober for some time. Although more recently there had been an issue of perhaps him falling off the wagon. But Hastings' family members said that they were surprised by this coroner's report and called it irresponsible. One family member said, I can honestly say with absolute certainty he wasn't doing meth. Methamphetamine on a drug test can be nasal spray, Sudafed, one of those upper drinks of the gas station, etc., Hastings, you may recall, was a muckraking journalist who won the prestigious Polk Award for his 2010 takedown of Stanley McChrystal in Rolling Stone. It was titled The Runaway General. Well, the LAPD is now saying there's no evidence of foul play in this case. At least one detective uh, talked to who, what, why, and said, yeah, yeah, McChrystal may have finally gotten back at Hastings. Which raises a curious question. With all of the electronics that we now have in our automobiles, might it be possible to, to take over a car remotely? It's a curious question for the modern era, and we refer you to a piece in the New York Times by John Markoff on this very topic, which I will quote from. With a modest amount of expertise, computer hackers could gain remote access to someone's car, just as they do to people's personal computers, and take over the vehicle's basic functions, including control of its engine, According to a report 
by computer scientists from the University of California, San Diego, and University of Washington. Notes that although no such takeovers have been reported in the real world, these scientists were able to do exactly this in an experiment conducted on a car they bought for the purpose of trying to hack it. Their report, delivered last Friday to the National Academy of Sciences Transportation Research Board, described how such unauthorized intrusions could theoretically take place. Because many of today's cars contain cellular connections and Bluetooth wireless technology, it is possible for a hacker working from a remote location to take control of various features like the car locks and brakes, as well as to track the vehicle's location, eavesdrop on its cabin, and steal vehicle data. The the researchers described a range of potential compromises of car security and safety. The piece by Markov says that the car security study is one of a growing array of safety concerns that are emerging as the internet comes in contact with almost every aspect of daily life, be it through financial systems or industrial controls. Computer security researchers have long argued that wholesale computerization and internet connectivity of complex systems presents new risks that are frequently exploited, starting with vandals with malicious intent. To which we say, holy crap. In the remote experiment, the researchers were able to undermine the security protecting the cellular phone in the vehicle they bought and then insert malicious software. This allowed them to send commands to the car's electronic control unit, the nerve center of a vehicle's electronic system, which in turn made it possible to override various vehicle controls. Notes the researchers declined to speculate about the worst situations, such as interfering with the vehicle's control system to make it crash. And if you know something about this, would you please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com? This is worth looking into, don't you think? And speaking of car electronics, automakers are hitting eject on their car's compact disc players, according to USA Today. Peace notes that while CD players in cars have endured, in spite of other ways to bring music into cars, manufacturers are beginning to banish them from dashboards and hide them in spaces often more associated with parking meter change or packages of tissues. Devices such as iPods and smartphones have pulled even with CD players for drivers, and automotive designers are happy to lose the cumbersome disc slots. Said Chrysler's interior design chief, if you don't have to worry about this CD player brick, you have much more flexibility. I guess if this makes for better air conditioning in a car, this could be a good thing, but I don't know. I like my CD player, don't you? I meant to talk about uh, our wildlife authority's brilliant idea to shoot owls, but didn't have the piece in front of me, but I've located it in the meantime, so let me quote from it. Wildlife officials have announced a plan to send hunters into the woods to kill one species of owl to save another in the Pacific Northwest. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released a final environmental review of a proposed experiment that will involve killing 3,603 barn owls in Washington, Oregon, and Northern California over the next four years to see if it will help the northern spotted owl. Known as spokesman for the Audubon Society of Portland, we remain unconvinced that this strategy, which will result in the death of thousands of barn owls, will be effective. And we are deeply concerned that the Fish and Wildlife Service continues to do an inadequate job of protecting old habitat. Hello? If you keep the habitat, in other words, the trees the logging companies would like to cut down, well, there shouldn't be a problem with the spotted owl. This doesn't seem that hard to figure out, does it?
Predictably, despite such criticism, the Fish and Wildlife Service is standing by its plan. Robin Brown, a federal wildlife biologist, told the LA Times that doing nothing is essentially the kiss of death for northern spotted owls. Said Bowen, while some people just feel we should leave things alone, we want to take a small step at the resolution with this experiment. Good God. We're getting tired of stories about state and federal wildlife officials turning out to be, well, what word should we use? Imbeciles? Jackasses? Fools? I don't know. Pick one. And another worrisome news, which I was reminded of after going up and uh, kayaking recently, is the fact that here in California, we depend on melting snow in the Sierra Nevada mountains. We depend on it for 75% of our water, including that which we need to irrigate farmland. If we see climate change and less snow, we may dry up like the Australian outback which also might again reinforce the idea that, you know, Northern California does not have the giant surplus of water that uh, Southern California likes to portray us as having. And we've done that topic today. How about this one? As quoted on this program many times in the past, it's said about lawyers that if you're in court and the facts are on your side, bang on the facts. If the law is on your side, bang on the law. When neither one's on your side, Bang on the table. And there's certainly quite a bit of table banging going on in the Sacramento area as regards this issue of a new arena, which the powers that be seem to be backing, and which a lot of citizens, rather understandably, would like to see put to a vote before a couple of hundred million dollars are committed to the enterprise. The proponents of this are crowing over the fact that apparently uh, one of the millionaires that didn't get his way in the bid to buy the team and move it to Seattle put $100,000 up to see this measure get put on the ballot. He was funding a um, petition drive in the case. And, uh, well, they're acting as though this is some sort of big nefarious thing involving lots of money. My God, he put up $100,000. What about the couple hundred million that the city's going to put up. What about the fact that, uh, well, let's just say a lot of lobbying is being done. We are all for putting this measure to a vote. Municipalities all across the United States, and for that matter, all across the world, have been burned by a lot of these deals uh, that benefit the um, very wealthy owners of sports teams, but not necessarily the voters and taxpayers in the municipalities that get stuck with the bill for a lot of these um, developments. Well, you promise you need to follow that one. But we're due for a break, so let's take one. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty more in segment three. <laughs> 